Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. I've never started an interview by saying that I wish I didn't have to talk to the person I was about to talk to. But in this case, it's true. The person I would like to talk to, the novelist and poet Perhat Tursun, has been disappeared into a Uyghur detention center somewhere in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of China. You've heard of these. They're internment camps set up by the Chinese government in the vast northwest region of China, where the majority of the 12 million people of the Uyghur minority group reside. And the detention situation is so widespread and so bleak that nearly every one of those 12 million people has someone in their immediate family who's been interned or worked in a detention center. Between a million and three million people have been detained, and though some have been released, many have not been seen for years. Perhat Tursun is the author of the extraordinary novel The Backstreets, whose closest equivalent to something you've read might be a bleaker, smoggier Camus or Ellison. An unnamed narrator who's left his rural village for a temporary office job in the city of Urumqi wanders through the night and his memories and the fog. The book was recently published in English, translated by Darren Byler and an anonymous co-translator who was last seen in 2017 and is also presumed to be in the detention centers. Byler is an assistant professor of international studies at Simon Fraser University and has written widely about the situation in the Uyghur region. He's also the author of the book Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City, which came out last year. Darren Byler joins us today to talk about his work in the region and his co-translation of Perhat Tursun's novel. Thanks so much for talking to me, Darren. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. How did you find your way to this novel in particular, which, as I understand it, was only published online in a forum, and to Perhat Tursun's work in general? Well, I'm an anthropologist by training, and I went to the region to do ethnography, which is you know, sort of deep hanging out, spending time in a space, um, interviewing people, really getting to try to understand their world and the social forces that constrain them, um, enable them. And um, so I was studying migration to the city, Uyghurs that were coming from rural areas, coming and, and coming to the city, trying to find work. Um, and trying to understand why they were doing that, um, beyond the obvious reasons of, of needing to make money. Um, and also trying to understand how the state, the Chinese state, was trying to control this population, mostly through the police force um, and through surveillance tools. And so I was thinking about that dynamic and talking to people already about it. And um, a friend said, oh, there's this book about a rural Uyghur person coming to the city and trying to find his way, trying to find a place um, by this author, Perhat Tursun, who I'd heard about before, um, but I hadn't heard about this novel. And, and so I picked up the novel and, it's, and started reading it and realized, oh, wow, this is like world-class literature. Um, it's an amazing story in itself. Um, and it also really speaks to these themes that I'm interested in as a researcher. And so I started working through it and you know, but I, I speak Uyghur, I, I studied Uyghur for quite a long time, but I'm not a native speaker, and this is a pretty challenging novel in some ways. Um, and so I thought reading it with a friend, kind of together, would be a useful way for me to 
more fully understand the novel. And also, if we decide that we want to do this, we could translate it um, and make it avail available for a broader audience. And, and so that's what we did. Yeah, I was really struck by how you talk about how people responded to the novel. Migrant workers that you were hanging out with for your field work said things like what your co-translator said, which was, quote, I feel as though this book was written just for me. Can you talk more about what you mean, like what resonated with these young migrants? Mm -hmm. So the story is about uh, this young man who finds a temporary job in a government office in Urumqi, the capital of the region. Um, and it's sort of a job that um, Uyghurs know as, as being sort of a, a token job, not a real job. Um, it's something that the state has set aside for ethnic minorities, but within the dynamics of the office space, um, there's all these kinds of, of, of political and racial dynamics um, that prevent people from feeling as though they have real agency or a real role uh, within those workplaces. Um, and many, many Uyghurs I've spoken to spoke about those dynamics, um, about how they feel like they're third-class citizens because they're rural and they're Uyghur, um, which is a, a marked ethnicity. They are, appear racially different from, from Han people, which is the majority group in China. Um, and, and so they feel really devalued and alienated um, and sort of lost and lonely and hopeless. And this novel, which is also a bleak novel, it's representing that. It's a portrait of that kind of experience, um, but it's, it's a representation of it for a broader audience. Um, and, it, and, and by telling their story and making it accessible for a broader audience, they're giving, the author, Perhat Tersun, is giving that experience a kind of value. Um, and so it's, it's staging it for um, the people that have experienced it, but also for people that you know, are looking from the outside and don't under, understand what it's like to be in that position. Um, and so my co-translator and many others I spoke to saw this novel as like the first time that their life experience was being valued, was being shown as worth knowing. Yeah, I mean, I'd love for you to talk more about what the, what like the physical and ethnic environment of the city is, of Urumqi in particular, because it is in the Uyghur region. And so, you know, if I didn't know anything about it, I would think, oh, okay, so it's mostly Uyghurs there. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily understand why it was alienating. And yet there's this constant refrain that the narrator has that comes up periodically where he says, I don't know anyone in this strange city, so it's impossible for me to be friends or enemies with anyone. How can that be? Mm -hmm. Well, it's important to know that the Uyghur region is the site of an internal colonization. So the Uyghur region is part of China. It's this vast area, like one-sixth of Chinese, the Chinese landmass. Um, but since the 1990s, it's been this, the center of resource extraction. Um, so millions of, of Han migrants from other parts of the country have moved there or been sent there. Um, to develop the infrastructure, which is pipelines and roads and so on, um, and then to begin to build out uh, oil and natural gas extraction industries. Um, around 20% of Chinese oil and natural gas comes from this region now. In addition, they've also begun to build these large corporate farms, um, mostly doing cotton production, growing cotton, um, and then more recently making textiles. And that has had the effect of pushing Uyghurs into sort of sharecropper positions, um, you know, that they kind of lose access to their own land or 
you know, what they can grow. Um, they're um, being pushed off of their land very directly, which is why all of these migrants were coming to the city to try to find work is because uh, the cost of living was rising in the countryside, but they couldn't find jobs or the jobs they could find were so low pay that the, they just couldn't survive. Um, so the cities themselves have become the domain of this settler population, the Han people. So Arumchi, the capital, is like 70, 80 percent Han. And so there's like these Uyghur enclaves or really ghettos because of the way that their people are pushed into them, where there's perhaps a Uyghur majority presence, at least in some of those neighborhoods. But everyone around them is Han. Um, and so, you know, as soon as they leave this area of the city, they're in this alien space. Um, that's you know where the strangers <laughs> start to emerge or are everywhere. So it's a process of internal colonization where people have been dispossessed of their land and their way of life. The institutions that you know used to be autonomous were the Uyghur space, like the school system, the legal system, the banking system, all of those things have now been captured by the settler population. And so that produces this relationship of domination over their lives there's an, an occupying force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's also no coincidence that the 1990s was when the, quote, Xinjiang problem, as it's called in mainstream China, began. Um, and the 90s, like 1990-ish, is like when this novel is set. I think it's sort of, it's not specified. You know, a lot of the things you're talking about aren't specified, but they're like all in the background, like the smog, you know? It's just there and it pervades everything. Can you talk about like how this is a political novel? Because reading it, it's deeply psychological. You know, it's like really about the narrator's experience. It's about the smog. It's about what's, you know, in his memories and in his present. But it's also extremely political. And you had a bunch of conversations with Prahat Tursun about this very subject. So maybe you can tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Right. So Prahat wrote this over the course of. Uh, a decade or more. I mean, he wrote the first draft in the early 90s, um, but you know, he kept working on it all the way up until we were translating it, basically. He was still editing it as we were translating, which made it kind of hard to translate. Um, um, so um, he's been thinking about this as a process for a long time. And, you know, there's a lot of constraints on what writers can write in China, um, especially if you're a Uyghur, um, you have even less sort of latitude to talk about anything that's sensitive because it can all be read as political. And so I think that is part of the reason why he focuses on the interiority of the protagonist and his thoughts um, and on the experience of the city itself um, because there's a lot of sort of symbolism that's woven through all of that and allusion and so on. He's evoking a lot of feeling in the reader, um, but he's making it less explicit than it could be. He could be saying these things more directly than he is. Um, some of it is because he knows the Uyghur readers will pick up on what he's saying and he doesn't have to say it so directly. Um, but a lot of it is because he knows that you know, the, the state is also going to read this novel um, and he doesn't want to go to prison. You know, it didn't in the end matter because he went to prison anyway. Um, but um, still, like that was obvious. That's, that's, that's just a normal part of life is you're constantly censoring your speech, um, how you talk, when you talk, where you talk, um, who with, on what medium. Like there's things you can say in person that you can't say on the phone and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So that's a part of the story. 
There is an interesting dynamic in China where because it's a socialist state and there's like this national liberation movement of the minorities, like having their own literature, that's also a Maoist literature or a Marxist literature, um, that the state is permitting Uyghurs to write. They actually encourage them to write, um, but within constraints um, in a way that promotes the state's agenda. And so Perhat is working within that system and needs to find a way to, to speak his own kind of truth, even as he knows that he can't say everything he wants to say. You include a little account from a friend of Tursun's that you call DM about his response to a previous novel from 1999, which was called The Art of Suicide. Um, and it was very controversial when it came out. Um, it was condemned by a lot of cultural conservatives. But then it got put on a list of 100 Greatest Uyghur Works. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how could somebody who's clearly writing in something of a critical mode, even as of a, like a subversive mode, however clandestine, how could something like that end up on this 100 Greatest Uyghur Works list? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. So I, in addition to sort of the censorship that he's experiencing from the Chinese state, there's also within the Uyghur sort of intellectual scene, um, a lot of sort of guarding of Uyghur traditions and like what's okay to say or not say. Um, and a lot of sort of conservatism when it comes to representations of sexuality um, or religion. Um, Uyghurs are Muslim. And so like what counts as like Uyghur Islam is something that's a contested object. Mm. Um, and Perhat is like not actually that interested, I don't think, in talking about, <laughs> um, you know, what is authentically Uyghur or not. Um, but his readers are concerned with those sorts of issues. And so the, the, his, his novel, The Art of Suicide, was provocative in talking about sexuality and talking about um, you know, some, of, some of the protagonist's relationships to religious practice. Um, and, and so it was condemned by some Uyghur critics. Um, but then you know, the state readers uh, in the state apparatus saw this as a provocative novel because it was sort of countering some of the traditionalism in Uyghur society. And so they thought, oh, this is a novel we should elevate. Um, also, they recognize that Uyghur, that, that Torsun is like, he's an amazing writer. Like he, um, he's a self-taught author who's like absorbed so much literature and then built his own voice out of that, um, that reading. Um, and so they recognize that this is a, an amazing author that needs to be elevated. Um, there's many, you know, critical thinkers within the Chinese state and within the sort of literary establishment in China as well. They want to do, they want to be able to write more freely than they're able to as well. Um, and so, you know, I think those are some of the things that, that pushed him onto that list. And then he said, I don't want to be on that list <laughs> because he didn't want to be in the same company as the others that are on that list. He didn't want to be read by Uyghurs as a state propagandist. And so he, he said, no, I want to be this sort of minor figure, um, <laughs> just sort of writing in the background and doing my own thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, that's such an interesting thing for someone to say who is so clearly not a minor figure. <laughs> um, can you talk more about like where... Tarsan fits in the constellation of like the Uyghur literary tradition, you know, what came before him? What is he responding to? Um, you know, how did he 
start incorporating all of this international literature. There's a lot of Western literature that's sort of alluded to, you know, in the style. Um, yeah, how does how do you get an author like Tersan? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so Uyghurs are poets, um, sort of in general. <laughs> like, it's something that people grow up around, reciting poetry, um, writing your own poetry. There's, you know, every village has a village poet, basically, which is like an interesting thing in itself. Um, and so Uyghur, like, Perhat grew up as a poet um, and would probably consider himself first a poet. Um, you know, that's what he wrote first. Um, and it's sort of Sufi poetry written in that tradition. Novels, you know, really started to emerge in Uyghur society only in the 1960s and 70s as the Uyghur sort of Maoist institution was built. Um, and so it was socialist realist literature, like Heroes of the Revolution, <laughs> was a lot of the novels that were written. Um, but they also like started to narrate Uyghur history um, always within the Chinese state's apparatus, but still kind of giving Uyghurs their own voice, their own history. Um, and so literature became really popular among Uyghurs. Almost everyone has read um, some of the central novels about that revolutionary period. And so Parhat is writing in dialogue with that socialist realist tradition, which is, you know, has you know slightly flawed characters, but in the end they're always heroes. They always... Um, you know, become models of what society should become. Um, and, and so he's turning instead towards more modernist post-colonial literature as, as, a, as an inspiration, source of inspiration. He's writing a dialogue with people like Mo Yan, who's a, a Chinese author who won the Nobel Prize, um, who's writing about sort of in a critical way about the Cultural Revolution. Um, but he's also going a, a bit beyond that to, to read um, read the Uyghur experience into the post-colonial um, literary frame. And so, you know, for him, um, when he's reading Black American literature, it, it reads differently for him than it would for Mo Yan, um, because he sees himself as a racialized other within the Chinese state, um, and so he's identifying with those others. And so, you know, Ralph Ellison in The Invisible Man, um, you know, that's his own story, or he feels as though that is a story that resonates really closely with him. Or uh, J.M. Kotze's um, uh, uh, Life and Times of Michael Kay you know, in Apartheid South Africa. And so I think post-colonial literature really gave him a way of understanding his own experience and, and beginning to narrate it. Um, and he's also really interested in existential like philosophy. He's writing a lot of Camus, a lot of Nietzsche. Um, and I think just in, interested in, in how those thinkers think and thinking with them, sort of thinking against the grain, um, wanting to make the normal unfamiliar um, a sort of literature of estrangement, I think, is is how he would think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that all jives with how I was reading the novel, and especially um, sort of in in sort of describing himself as a racialized other in the novel, or describing the narrator. You know, um, the big big part of that is this dehumanization. Like, there's this like rats come up a lot. The narrator talks about himself feeling like a rat or, you know, scurrying around. And it's not just once, it just crops up periodically. Um, and that is a big part of how the narrator, at least, feels like he's treated by 
Han Chinese, like how Uyghurs are treated by Han Chinese. Um, can you talk more about like how that manifests like in a literary way? And also like what, I guess, you know, if this, it this novel is, is set in the 1990s, I guess, how that dehumanization began and how it led to where we ended up today with like the ultimate dehumanization of these internment camps. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to make it so obvious in my introduction or even in the translation that like he's been reading some Kafka and like metamorphosis um, and like, you know, you discovering that you're a rodent, but it's also like a, the reality of how he's experienced life. Um, and I think has to do with the way that the institutions of Uyghur society were transformed by recent migrants, people who had no experience living in this part of the country before um, and kind of came to take take possession of the land and and the and one of the resources and and needed to justify that process um, and the way you do that is by saying that Uyghurs are backward they're uncivilized or worst case scenario they're separatists they're extremists um, they're terrorists and um, the discourse of terrorism as it was was built up over the last couple decades really produces that dehumanization. You know, terrorism is a contemporary framing of the barbarian, of the savage other, um, the way that history books used to talk about Native Americans, right? Um, and, and as a way of justifying our, our colonial legacy, our colonial history, that's now happening in real time in Northwest China. So being removed from the village and in the city um, is is a part of the process of sort of removing some of what made Uyghur life possible. Um, there's all these moments in the book where he talks about how you need to like walk through a gate or over like a crack in the sidewalk, right foot first or else you have bad luck. Or there's this one moment where he talks about singing and how like Uyghurs, when they walk from one space to another, like they'll sing a song faster or slower depending on how long they need to walk so that the song will match the space. And I actually interviewed a lot of people about that. Um, and they said, yeah, that's true. Like, you know, <laughs> like, we like measure the space from our field to our house. Um, you know, we know exactly how long a song will be and, and how like a four minute song will be this. And, and so we'll sing it that way and all that, all that, like, and people really sing loudly in the villages, like it's and unashamedly, um, it's just like a normal part of life. Not that I'm wanting to make like over romanticize Uyghurs as like this happy singing minority, which is the Chinese state's representation of them. But like, there is like some truth in how people experience life um, through cultural expression and through ritual and so on. And so like being removed from those, the sight of, of those sorts of expressions or being constrained because of surveillance, like you don't want to sing anymore. <laughs> that is also a part of the process of dispossession. And I think it's something that produces that dehumanization. You're being forced as a person. The Uyghurs are being forced as people to um, remove parts of what make themselves human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The situation is really dire currently in the Uyghur region. And with the sheer number of like incredibly important cultural producers and also just humans stuck in detention, I'm wondering, do you have any plans for translating the rest of Tursun's work? Is that even a possibility at this point? One of my last conversations with Perhat was 
about the the part two of this novel. So there's a, a sequel that he's already written, and he was really excited about publishing and translating as well. Um, and so he was pushing me to p- translate and publish this thing. But he said, we also need to start working on the second one. Um, and so, you know, we've tra- I've translated a few pages, um, but it's mostly finding the time and the space um, to do more. Like seeing how this book has been received also is really encouraging. And, and, and so I think it is likely that we'll see more work from Perhatur soon in the future. In 2020, word got out of the camps that Perhat Tursun had been given a 16-year prison sentence. He'll be 67 when he is released. You can find links to his novel, The Backstreets, translated by Darren Byler and an anonymous co-translator, in the show notes. You can also find recordings of Tursun reading his own work on the internet, including this one, a poem called Elegy, We're going to close out the episode with that recording, but first I'm going to read the English translation with permission of the translator, Joshua Freeman. Elegy. Your soul is the entire world. Hermann Hesse, Siddhartha. Among the corpses frozen in exodus over the icy mountain pass, will you recognize me? Our brothers we begged for shelter took our clothes. Pass by there even now and you will see our naked corpses. When they force me to accept the massacre as love, do you know that I am with you? After three hundred years they awaken and do not know each other, their own greatness long forgotten. I happily drank down poison, thinking it fine wine. When they search the streets and cannot find my vanished figure, do you know that I am with you? In that tower built of skulls, you'll find my skull as well. They cut my head off just to test the sharpness of a sword. When before the sword, our beloved cause and effect relationship is ruined like a wild lover, do you know that I am with you? When in the market, men with tall fur hats are used for target practice, and a man's face draws out in agony as a bullet cleaves his brain, And before the eyes that look to find the reason of their death, the executioner fades and disappears. Reflected in that bullet-pierced brain's fevered thoughts will be my form. Just then do you know that I am with you. In those times when drinking wine was a greater crime than drinking blood, do you know the taste of the flour ground in the blood-turned mill? The wine that Alashir Navai deliriously dreamed took its flavor from my blood. In that endlessly mystical drunkenness's farthest, deepest chambers, do you know that I am with you? Kaside, sinang rohing putun dunya, hermanis sinang sadhart khadun. Kach kach the muzdavan the tonglap kalgain jaset larich chiden mini tuni alam sen. Panah tartkan, kerindashlar saldırı aldı ki yenilerimizni. Hazır mı undun özsen uçuraydı yalana cesetlerimiz. Katla amni ular mana muhabbet dep tanganda, bilem sen men sen bilem bille. 300 yıllık uykudan uyğunup tonumaydı ular birbirini, bilmeydi hem yüzünün uluğlukunu. Zeherni isil şarap bilip şallık bilen içivetken men. Ular koçulardan gayip bolgan gevdemini izde tapalmay yürgende. 
Bilem sen men, sen bilem bille. Kallılardın yasalgan aşı mınar içidi bar minanlı kallam. Kılıçlığın ittik kallıqını sınaş üçüllü kesken minin kallamını. Kılıç aldı da. Biz söygen sebep netici münasibeti. Kudu telvi aşıqının vücudu da gümran bulğanda. Bilem sen men, sen bilem bille. Bazarda igiz tumaklıqlar, kargı eliş, məşk nişanı bulğanda. Minisigi oksancılgan kişinin. Çırayı azaplıq suzulup üzünün. Ülis sebebini bilmek bulup kargan küzünün aldı da. Cellatının gevdisi gualiş bir kalğanda. Oh sançılgan minidik kızıp ketken tepekkürde. Eks etkini minin gevdim. Aşçağda bilem sen men sen bilem bille. Şarap içkan içtim eğir guna hesaplangan aşı devirlerde. Bilem sen adem kinoda çögülgen tügümende tartılgan unnan temini. Elşer Navayi, Esabiler çıkan hıyal kılıp çıkan şerepten temi, Ülge ilingan minin kınımdın. Çeksiz sırlıklaşkan aşı meslekten en çoğun kur katlamları da, Bilem sen men, sen bilem bilem.